It's midnight on a cold February in 2017. We're high up in the middle of the English countryside with Wiltshire police on a stakeout. Beneath us in the dark is a nuclear bunker. Most of it's underground, built to withstand an atomic attack during the Cold War. When it was operational, it was top secret, but after the government left, it was just forgotten. But we've received intelligence that criminals have taken it over. We have an idea of what's going on, sketchy, nothing confirmed. But we've decided to strike, and we're about to go on the most extraordinary raid of our careers. You could hear a pin drop there, it was just in a valley with grass fields everywhere. So you could start an engine a mile away and you'd hear it because it was just so eerie. Yes, stealth is vital. There's only one way in and one way out of this concrete fortress. We had to get that key. That key to get through that blast door was so, so relevant. Speed and guile, one false move and the investigation's over. The time they come out to get into the car to go to lock up is 10, 15 seconds. So we didn't have a lot of time to get our cars, get down there. We were just going off the moonlight to try and be covert. And the only way you knew how close you were to the car in front was when they hit their brake lights. Don't think for a second this is a crime caper. Soon we'll see the dark side of drug production. And these people were locked in. This is the living conditions that they were exposed to. With the plants being at every stage, they must have almost been on shifts constantly tending to him. And we'll learn the unknown risks of busting one of Britain's biggest ever drugs factories. That turned on, you guys would have been dead. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from the people who were involved. Victims, detectives, experts, and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest profile crime stories for television news. In this series, I'll be making a deep dive into each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to evade justice. If you want to see evidence from each inquiry, watch video clips, read more, or get in touch, just subscribe to the Behind the Crime site on Substack. Go to robertsmurphy.substack.com. That's robertsmurphy.substack.com. And please do rate and review our podcast wherever you listen to it. A word of warning, this is a true crime podcast. There may be language and descriptions some might find affecting. For example, in this episode, there are descriptions of both human and animal suffering. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is called The Secrets of the Nuclear Bunker. Today, we're with two detectives. My name is Paul Franklin. I'm currently a Detective Academy Manager for Wiltshire Police, was previously a Detective Inspector, retired in 2021. My name is Joe Shanklin. I'm a Detective Sergeant in the Counter-Corruption Unit at Wiltshire Police. Uh, previously, I was on the proactive team with Paul. 
and detectives Franklin and Shanklin were called to an improbable case. This is the story of a criminal plot which happens in the most unlikely place possible. We're in the village of Chilmark in southern England. It's about an hour and a half southwest of London in the pretty county of Wiltshire, about 10 miles from Stonehenge. I bet you no one who's uh, who's listening to this has a clue, A, what Chilmark is, B, where it is, and see what it looks like. Nor did we when we started, to be fair. Chilmark will be your typical sort of rural village in Wiltshire. It's local houses, thatch houses, Country pub. pubs. I'd never heard of it. I'd never been there. There was, you know, the amount of crime that would be out there would have been minimal. The population is just 525 people. There's a church, a small primary school and a pub called the Black Dog. But as well as these classic features of English village life, about a mile away, in the middle of absolutely nowhere, is a government-built Cold War bunker designed to survive a nuclear bomb. We'll be spending a lot of time in there today. It's called RGHQ, which was Regional Government Headquarters. It was a decommissioned nuclear bunker or a bunker of some sort built in the 80s by the government. Uh, and again, around that area, there was old train tracks that used to serve it that were no longer in operation. And when you go down there then, back in the day, you couldn't actually see much of anything. It was totally overgrown. It was effectively in the middle of what you would call a small wood. Uh, you could see a big antenna cable communications tower that was sticking out. And you could see the tops of what looked like ventilation shafts with metal louvres louvre on the outside of them. But other than that, you pretty much couldn't see anything at all. It was just trees, a massive earth bank, uh, down a tiny one-track road. No lighting, no houses around it. The building was so remote that even villagers would never go there. Only a small group of people seemed to know about its existence. I think it was um, known, though, to the kind of urban explorers as a kind of quirky, um, you know, unknown, unexplored um, area really and, and I think that there's several websites that kind of spoke about the eeriness and, and there's several across um, the UK that have these RGHQs. Wiltshire police knew about it in fact a few years before 2017 they'd even been inside the nuclear bunker. Prior to that probably a number two or three years prior to that I was working as a detective inspector for Salisbury CID and one of the intel guys called Corky had come to me and said, look, we've got some intel about this building at Chilmark. It's potentially being used to produce cannabis. We've got some irregular intel reports from local dog walkers. Uh, they can, that sweet, sickly smell. There may be something going on there. So he'd done some previous research. And, and a year or two before that, we'd had the same sort of intelligence information coming in. And it had been handed to a uniform inspector so they'd gone down there on mass a number of uh, uniform cops and they tried to get into the building, were unable to do so because the way the building is constructed, the actual door to get in is a bomb blast door. There is no real way of getting through that. Uh, but whilst they were there, someone had contacted the police. Right. And as it turned out, the building itself had its own CCTV system and they'd seen the police there. So they were given access to the building. Following that, there was a key that was available locally. They'd got, and they'd gone in there, and it was just at that time a decommissioned bunker. So still a, empty. Yeah, empty. No, you know, it wasn't active. Nobody in there. The MOD had left a load of detritus in there. So there was old computer setups. There was you know, monitors, all very 1980s style paperwork. Rubbish, really. A lot of rubbish, a lot of spare parts that they just never cleared out. So that was all in there. Nobody was living there. 
There was certainly no criminal activity. And so thanked him for his time and left, uh, locked it up. Key goes back. And that's the end of it. So at that time, Paul Franklin was running a criminal investigation department, a CID, and he didn't have the capacity to keep a permanent watch on this empty nuclear bunker where there was occasional reports of a smell of weed. But in early 2017, two things happened. A strange delivery was spotted at the bunker and Paul Franklin took a new job heading a proactive department. This was now his kind of thing. I think one of the reports that had kicked it off, and I can't remember who had seen this, but they'd seen a water bowser, so a lorry with a water tank had gone into this venue. So again, why would you want that much water if it's not being lived in? And one of the things, you know, if you're going to do any sort of growing cannabis, whatever, you need a lot of water. So that had come to me when I was in the CID. Unfortunately, at the time, didn't have the capacity or staff to deal with it, so we couldn't mount any operation to actually tackle it, and it got fed back that we'd have to monitor it for the time being. Subsequently, out with my career, I get then moved on to the proactive teams. I get approached again, and now I'm in the right place. I've got the right people around me. I've got the time. I've got the capacity. And that's when we thought, actually, yeah, we'll do that, but we'll take on board what had happened previously and actually we'll use some different tactics and try and find out what's going on before we show our hand. So when you hear that, all you know is that one of your colleagues has been in before and it was empty, but now a water bowser has gone in. We had the helicopter, didn't we? We had the helicopter, but there wasn't really much of a heat signature off of it. And again, when you look at the building itself, it's concrete, it's covered an earth berm over the top of it, so it was very minimal. Uh, so it was worth looking at. And again, what triggered it for me was it wasn't just a single report that's happened. These reports have been trickling in now over a number two, three, four years. What's going on in the back of your mind about what it is? And of course, any, any thoughts about scale? Any thoughts about who might be in there? Any thoughts of what's going on so intelligence wise you've got no idea who's in there or who's connected to it so that's you know an area investigation that's at this time we've got no leads on uh it is a rural location it is an ideal place for something like a cannabis grow Uh, so that's the line i'm thinking of but again i've got no plans or footprint of the building itself so i don't know how big how small how developed it is but because I knew the team around me could do something with it, it, it piqued my interest that there was something there. But we certainly didn't have, I certainly didn't want to go crashing through. I didn't want to go knocking on the door. I knew from previously and the type of one it was, you wouldn't gain access to it very easily. You couldn't just go and say, knock on the door, here's a warrant, can we have a look inside? We've had some complaints. I mean, you can do that. But in reality, if they say no or just no one answers, what's your next step? Because you've kind of shown your hand. And from the previous time, we was aware that on the building itself, there was some sort of CCTV monitoring. So whether that was still live or not, we didn't know. But if you take it as it is, you've got to think actually, you need to do something a little bit smarter than that. You need to find a bit more a way. A, you want to find a way in, and B, know what we were dealing with. This early part of the investigation was quite simple and very successful. They mounted infrared motion detection cameras on the property, looking at the single entrance to the nuclear bunker. They didn't need monitoring all the time. Detectives could just watch on catch up to see who was coming and going. And this provided some leads. There was a car that came regularly. Uh, I think from memory, it was like every Tuesday it came. 
It's always come within the same sort of time window, sort of two, three hour time window from midnight onwards. Uh, so that led to inquiries, we've got a name of the owner of the vehicle, uh, that linked into the person, that linked into, it was linked to an organised crime group that came out of Bristol. So straight away you're thinking now actually this isn't ad hoc, it's an organised crime group involved, actually there's some, there's some money behind it, there's some thought behind it, there's some planning behind it. So actually whatever is happening in that building is something that we should be looking at. And just take us through your uh, decision-making process from then, because you've got your mind that it's a cannabis grow, but you've got no way of getting in. There's bomb blast doors, yeah. and it's a massive site. There could be, I guess, weapons. There could be yeah. anything inside. There could be dangers that you may not be able to predict. So talk us through your decision-making about the team you put together and what, uh, how you'd organise your response to this. So our team were capable with the right vehicles, the right equipment as regard tasers to look after themselves. There was no firearms markers on the building or the people themselves that we had identified, so we were able to put that to one side. From the previous activity of going there, we worked out that obviously they were getting in and out, so the only way they could be getting in and out is with a key. So we needed the key on them to get in, so we needed the element of surprise couldn't really plan for what was inside so much as we just have to go in there and play it by ear. But as part of that preparation, I spoke to my colleagues who were the CID DIs of saying, look, potentially we could find a lot here and we'll need some help with investigation, with interviews. So they were kind of put on standby. But I said, it could blow out to nothing. We could do all this again and find very little in there. So a lot of it was the unknown. A lot of it was until that day we actually get in, I can't really tell you what's going on and a lot of it will be played by ear. All they had was a time frame, midnight on Tuesdays into Wednesdays, when a car would turn up and people went in and out of the nuclear bunker in the dark. So Paul's team prepared to strike on the following Tuesday. Now, if you're listening in America or somewhere like that, you might think it's strange that here's a team of police about to turn over what they think is a drugs factory run almost certainly by an organised crime group, but they, the police, don't have guns. And they don't think the gangsters will have guns either. Officers had taser stun guns, nothing more. It's a sign of how seldom firearms are ever used in England. The bunker was in the bottom of a valley down a single track road. The team couldn't park outside it, they would have scared the visitors to the nuclear bunker away. So Paul built a team of 12 officers, including Joe. They were in five cars which waited at the top of the hill, engines off, incognito, while the officer monitoring the camera checked for when the visitors would arrive. You could hear a pin drop there, it was just a, in a valley with grass fields everywhere. So and this is night time, it's dark, is nighttime, isn't so it? It's midnight, so you could hear... Post-midnight, yeah. Post-midnight, you could hear a pin drop. We're waiting on... We had confirmation that um, they're on site, so already we're kind of... We're in the cars, we're alert, we're ready. So this is the thing, we've got fast cars, but our cars are diesel. So you could start an engine a mile away and you'd hear it because it was just so eerie. We knew they were inside, um, and that, that was great, so we're on tender hooks, we're out of the way, and then we needed to get down the hill quietly and just at the right time that we could 
be, be in the right position that we don't go into pursuit and we're chasing down country lanes and we had to get that key. That key to get through that blast door that Paul talks about was so, so relevant. You used the word just there, tenterhooks. Just yeah. describe what was going through your mind. I remember we're all sat in the cars, lights are off, you know, we couldn't have the aircon going, or we're outside a farm, and we're just this this long period of uh, just hand, making small talk. So we just waited for the go sign, and the go sign would be seconds because the time they come out to get into the car to go to lock up is 10, 15 seconds. So we didn't have a lot of time to get our cars, get down there. So when we heard the, from Corky, yep, yeah, they're out, 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 we were like, bro, we're game on now. We were driving down the hill, but we didn't have our lights on. We were just going off the moonlight to try and be co covert in the sense of get down there. Because if you imagine you're just coming out and you hear a car start and you see headlights coming down a hill, they would probably either just go into hiding or have you. Or we were just trying to lights off and we're just coasting down the hill, just nice and quiet. Almost bumper to bumper going down in this convoy. And the only way you knew how close you were to the car in front was when they hit their brake lights and then you realise I'm really close here. But I think we timed it beautifully that we were able to get down and block the exit. To kind of grab them with the keys and get everyone under control because it's pitch black. We don't want to be chasing people through woods. And that was a point that when we got there, we thought, right, we're, we're halfway there then. And we, when we found the key, which was kind of like this. It's about six inches long. Yeah, six, yeah. we then knew, right, we can kind of, that, 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 level of um, your heart rate was going um, was all kind of we could calm down a little bit because we had everyone under control slow it down so you don't they don't know where police at that point so your risk is they think it's another team that are going to rob them because we're just in plain clothes just in so the dead no of night uniforms on so that's why you're shouting police because once they know you're police they they're more relaxed because they're not going to get properly hurt so if it's another team that we're on them another, gang. another yeah. gang yeah being robbed so, yeah. so that's the risk And Paul, at this position here, are you sort of pacing away in headquarters or are you on the scene as well? In all honesty, I think I was at home. Were you? Yeah. You weren't even with us? I didn't go out. I didn't go out that night. I was just like... He had his pyjamas on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said only cocoa. We had the key, serving Dan. We detained him and, and, and cuffed him just for safety. A bit of shock and awe, really. Yeah, they were just... Lights are on shouting yeah. screaming. and they're not battenberg cars they are they're unmarked cars so um we, once that all chaos had calmed down a little bit we then wanted to know what we found what we what we got so we we took this big key and there was multiple there, there was a gate to get through then there was a kind of another gate and a bomb blast door and when you open that that was when you realized just the scale of what we had just um unearthed really So far, so good. They had the all-important six-inch key to the nuclear bunker. They had arrested three men. But detectives still had no idea what they were dealing with. It was time to open the blast door to get inside. And I remember going in and just... It's very eerie, but when you open the door, the sound of the whirring of all the kit inside that going on, the fans, the the, the kind of oxygen um, stuff going on, 
And then I realised this was a massive, massive building. To, and we, we didn't know who was in there. We didn't know what was in there. We had to contain the people outside. We had to search this massive building. So we vastly ran out of resources quite quickly. Within minutes, it was, we've got a cannabis grow. It's huge, it's massive. I remember the frantic calls. Um, and then the least we could then get the ball rolling on. I'm sure you've done raids on cannabis factories before, but compare this with the other raids that you've yeah. seen um, before. Quite often, um, you, you'd have a, a room or a, a couple of rooms that have been manufactured uh, or adapted to kind of do what we need to do. So, so new lighting and um, some tin foil or some kind of uh, trying to keep the heat in. This was on an industrial scale. This this room or the, the, these building this building in fact was what do we say it was two hundred two hundred feet 200 long foot by long, forty foot wide by forty foot on two, two floors. There was a corridor. It reminded me like of a just a really eerie um, derelict building from like the eighties because it was just this horrible decor of kind of drab off white with kind of olive corridor like remind me like a real old world war hospital i think and just peering in going oh that's a baby room that's a nursery room that's a that's now kind of infants and then right to the these are the plants fully fully grown right up to harvest to drying and i remember just coming back saying there's room after room here but you couldn't get into some of the rooms they were just jam-packed they were chocker you if you wanted to search the room you almost had to remove the stuff to search them. Um, I remember one room opening it up and it was just of upturned soil. So that's where they just got this spent soil. To, I don't know how to get rid of it. So they just stacked it up in this room. So there could be a body behind there for you know. What thoughts did you have about the fact that this had been going on clearly for a long time? Undetected, yeah. It was, I was, kind of amazed by the, the scale of it you couldn't just do all that overnight there's no way that scale of that operation you could have just kind of you had to get infrastructure into there you had to get the product out of there a big lorry coming through a tiny village daily or weekly or what have you would be like well that's the fourth fifth time i've seen that lorry because everyone would know everyone in that village wouldn't they yeah. you couldn't rouse suspicions with big kits so everything had to be brought in on i imagine under normal kind of cars and and, and vans. Between the police's last visit a few years earlier and now in February 2017, one of, if not the, biggest illegal cannabis factory in Britain had been built. The scale was, like the smell from the plants, eye-watering. Two floors, 200 feet by 40 feet, each roughly half the size of a football pitch, each with nearly every square inch dedicated to growing weed. That amount of drugs needed to be protected and grown and three guys coming once a week at midnight on Tuesdays couldn't do that. So this is where the story of the nuclear bunker takes a darker turn. Four men, police say, had been locked inside to cultivate the crops. There was no way that anyone could get out of the way that we came in. I think we we found a few gardeners, um, some Vietnamese gardener, gardeners, and what was rushing through my mind was, are they all right? How long have they been there? You know... We had a language barrier because we wanted to try and say you're safe, but at the same time, I didn't know how many there were here. We wanted to know um, kind of 
how we needed to preserve life really as well as secure a scene. There's two detained quite quickly, yeah. a third one found in another part of the building and that was it for a while. Three Vietnamese gardeners were looked after but there was a fourth who had by all accounts been trying to get out for ages from this nuclear bunker which had been his home. His escape route was desperate. He'd gone up into the ventilation shaft because we as we explored the building further they found this ladder that was tied into the very top. At the top there, there was some spent used hacksaw blades. I think he said there was four or five of them. And there was bars cut. It's a shaft of three ladders long, deep. That's how, how, how long this shaft was. It was a ventilation shaft, basically. So maybe maybe uh, 10 metres or something like yeah. that? No, maybe eight metres. If you fell, you would have been badly injured. And it was, a, it was three fully extended ladders uh, on, on its um, to, to the top where you were greeted by just almost like a prison cell bars on on the roof to stop anyone getting in or out. So he was up on this um, wobbly ladder in this concrete shaft with a hacksaw blade that was snapped. And I think, I think he ended up using the blade on its own, I think, because the blade, you could see there's multiple spent blades. And he had to get through this um, tiny bar and he squeezed his way through. Talking of now a young Vietnamese male in February, in a rural location that you, you've probably never seen. He's probably been driven to the site, taken straight in, so he has no idea where he's going. Uh, I think he went towards the village. We recovered him. We got some phone calls in saying, like, there's this young Vietnamese male. And he was in, like, a T-shirt or something, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah he'd because... been Because inside, you know, because to grow the plants and grow them quickly, you need a lot of heat, a lot of CO2, a lot of light. So you've got constant the bulbs on producing heat so inside you are constantly in best t-shirt shorts that's all you need because it's a really humid high temperature maintained so he's gone from that to a, a february in wiltshire in an area you don't know and then don't know yeah. and the 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 top of that um that bar the bars he cut his way out of were multiple mobile phones like um like kind of burner phones cheap kind of nokia 10 pounders and i think we took the we understood that as that's the only place they could make a phone call because you couldn't get out the, f the front door, which was a blast door. So the only way they could get any form of call to the outside world was via these shafts on this ladder and just kind of making a call a bit like, kind of, can, can you hear me? Because um, it's the only bit that was above ground, really, wasn't it? It was that, and that's the only bit that was exposed because everything was below soil. So three Vietnamese gardeners were passed to victim support services, the fourth who'd made the perilous escape up three wobbly ladders onto the roof and jumped metres down, was later found wandering in the freezing Wiltshire countryside in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. Detectives started concentrating on the staggering scale of this operation and the deep squalor of the gardeners' underground world. I got a phone call at home to say, actually, it's a massive cannabis grow bigger than we could ever have imagined so I jumped in the car and drove down there and I eventually found my way there and you just walk in you're almost overwhelmed by it. you know you walk up this you know, from this little wooded area you've got this walkway with whatever 10 15 foot of concrete walls either side of you you've got a massive bomb blast door you go in there and then you go in the smell hits you the heat the humidity the general dirtiness and then you got their sleeping area, which was like, say, blow up beds. There was a fish tank, a TV. Mm. Then you got like a kitchen area, which is the other area really didn't have any 
cannabis in it, and so you still had the old industrial, unusable cookers that were still in situ. On top of that, you had a little gas burner and a little cooker that could work. You had some freezers with like food in for them. Then you had like the washing facilities and the toilets, and the toilets were all taped off. They clearly weren't working. Uh, I think there was one that seemed to work, so the conditions were grim. Uh, and they were using liquid fertilizer for the plants, but then using them as urinals as well and filling up. So you just had stacks and stacks smell, of plastic bottles with urine in. Again, you've got the smell from that, you've got the smell from cannabis. And these people were locked in. These, this is the living conditions that they were exposed to. There was a sunbed in there. I wonder if that, um, that sunbed was a way of kind of getting any vital vitamins in because there was no daylight in there. With the plants being at every stage, they must have almost been on shifts, constantly tending to them. You know, they constantly needed watering, feeding, growing. Detectives came across a machine, a large machine. They didn't know what it was, its importance to growing cannabis or its deadly capabilities. I think it might be one of the electric board guys who come in and said, you know what that is, don't you? And, uh, sorry, he goes, that's a CO2 machine. He says what they do is they tape up the room so it's sealed, pump CO2 into it so it extracts all the oxygen totally, but obviously increases the speed at which the plants grow so they can crop them quicker. He said, but if that's running and you walk into a room like that, obviously there's no oxygen and you're almost unconscious instantly. So you've been in a locked building yeah. with just these two ventilation shafts yeah. with hardly any toilet facilities, running water, the CO2 machine running as well to help the... The growth of the plants. Yeah. So they're relying on their gaffer tape on the doors, keeping the CO2 in there. So the gaffer tape was the thing between life and death. And when he said, if that turned on, you guys would have been dead. Suddenly, this search of the bunker became even more serious. It appeared that the men had been locked inside. There was a dope-growing machine which, if it were turned on, would kill everyone inside, including the detectives. But the factory managers, if we can call them that, had illegally tapped into a nearby electricity pylon. And the supply firm insisted that had to be cut. Sun Electric came round and said, this needs to go off. So then we're plunged into darkness. And when they um, went round to look at how they had tapped in, they tapped it into a, a wooden telegraph pole, but had simply just um, tapped in live to a live feed, which, you know, I remember him commenting how well it had been done, better than any of they, they could have done, um, which so just showed the sophistication. They still had the original genuine feed to the building. That was it. So they were still paying their £100 a year electric So bill. Just, just to tip over as like a, a normal But then bill. they had a second feed that was totally blind to the electric company that they then piped into the building to run the cannabis. Later estimates suggested the cannabis factory had stolen an extraordinary amount of electricity over the years. 20 rooms, constant high heat, high temperature bulbs. Humidity. Yeah, yeah. 650,000 yeah. signed off over the years. So, yeah. that's, so they had to try and calculate that. And that was, again, that produced another... You know, unplanned for, I suppose, consequences. For them, the safety was they had to kill the power. But as soon as they killed the power, we had no light inside. The humidity went through the roof because you've got all this green plant material still growing, but now no ventilation at all, no natural sunlight. But we still need to search it. We still need to make sure there's nothing there and more untoward. Now we need lighting, but we don't need lighting. We need ventilation. We need extraction systems. We now need toilets 
because there is no usable toilets there. So all of a sudden the logistical side of it, in addition to you've still got, got seven people there that need dealing with, and you've got a site that now you realise. So there was a specialist team from Avon Somerset that do cannabis grows. And I'd previously spoken to the to Pete who leads them said, you know, I might need your help. So they'd kindly come down. They're like, this is the biggest thing we've seen. And they're like, you know, how long will it take you to evidence what's in there? And he's like, yeah, it'll take me a week. I think it right in a building with no light, no natural light. So that's a week before we even start removing them. This is just the evidence gathering. So also, yeah, your challenges are building up now faster than you can think. So you've gone from the euphoria of we've got the biggest cannabis find ever to now the reality of yeah. we've got to deal with it. So <laughs> that fell on me. Uh, yeah. I got nicknamed Logistic Bronze, I think. Um, and, you know, I, I still get uh, jokes about it now where they said, well, thanks for ordering the toilet because I had to order a toilet in and I and then we needed to get um, power in. So we needed a, gener a couple of generators. We needed um, lighting throughout. CSI came down at one point, but they needed more lighting than what they had. So we just ordered like £2,000 worth of um, generators and, and lighting and air ducting, air ducting like this, just to pump fresh air in. Um, and then we had to have oxygen sensors and, and kind of hand... Um, it's hand a huge health and safety yeah. nightmare. And then again, on top of that, you've got to guard it. So you've got PCs on guard duty. There's a lot hours. of stuff in there that people yeah. would like to get they their hands back, on. They want back. Detectives say the workmanship of the outfit was highly professional, despite how perilous life was locked inside. And what you've got to remember is when you set up a room to grow cannabis, each plant effectively has a, a heat lamp light over the top of it. So if you've got a room with, say for instance, 200 plants in, that's 200 lights. So that's 200 strands of wire that come from those lights, that has to go to a circuit board, that has to be plugged in. So every room has to be wired like that with a board with 200 plugs on it, is what they've done, yeah. is how they've done it. So the time spent- To, to the infastructure point, to get infrastructure it in. Infrastructure for that electrician to have come in and done that, was incredible, and, it, was and it might have been it might have been the safest fit ever ever made or done, but we're not experts. We're not um, Sparky, so the, the so if there had been a, yeah, if there had been, been a, some sort of fire. shortage, fire outage, there was no way they could get out to save themselves. As in, there was no emergency exit for them. There was no way. So, what about the men who were arrested? Who was behind this? They had three men in custody. Each was refusing to cooperate, but detectives managed to charge each of them with conspiracy to produce Class B drugs. There was a 30-year-old from Bristol, Ross Winter. He was detained alongside a Vietnamese man who also lived in Bristol. He was a 27-year-old called Plamen Nguyen. But the brains of the outfit was a 45-year-old called Martin Fillery. Now, he rented a mansion in Somerset. When detectives searched that, it was clear he had a lot of disposable income, which he spent in some, well, let's say, unusual things. And in his house is stuffed full of film memorabilia and cars. So there's all sorts of cars. There's the 1970s Batman Batmobile boat. There's... What, full size? Full size. Yeah. A copy of Del Boy's three-wheeler. Like, not the original one from the set, but again... The, and American muscle cars, Roland Rapp, if you remember him, used to drive an old pink Anglia. There was one of those there. And there was a ter Terminator, um, full-size Terminator, like statue or figurine. And there was all sorts, you know, from Terminator, Star Wars, the Stormtroopers. Fillery collected other things. And this is where the story takes another sad turn, particularly if you're an animal lover. 
kept wallabies and he kept monkeys. I think the macaques are the smaller kind of monkeys. Where were the monkeys? Were they in cages? So or? they were in different cages in different parts of the building. Uh, so a very uh, amazing character. So now we're thinking actually. So now we're thinking. So what do you do with the monkeys? Well, we wanted to take them back to Monkey World, so we rang them up only because that's the closest place for us and the only place I could think that would, uh, any zoo probably would have taken them, but I thought that sounded reasonable. They, they were really good, they said, yeah, no. but for them, they said, you need to hand them over, as in sign them over, because we want that sort of, they're his property effectively, so we don't want that sort of legal challenge. As long as he's happy with them, we'll take them. So we did that, so we had to go, by this time, things have moved on, they've been interviewed, they've been charged, and reminds he's in prison. So officers go to prison, say, look, this is what we've got, and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll sign him over. But then he lists what monkeys he's got and he's got. And we realised we're short, we're too short. So what we didn't realise is there's a smaller cage in a different part of the building that we'd missed. Uh, so we go back there and unfortunately there's two in there. One of them's deceased by this time, one of them's still alive. So we saved him, get to the vet, that goes to Monkey World. But the other... Doesn't make small, it. Doesn't make it, unfortunately. But, but again, you think, well, how do you miss them? But when you look at this huge house, huge property, and it was just bizarre, like I said, because there was so much there, and you're, you are trying to search it, and you're trying evidentially, to, and evidentially, and try and seize, because now we're also looking at proceeds of Crime Act. Uh, he's obviously made lots of money from this cannabis, so we want to try and prove that. So we're seizing this. Memorabilia, aren't we? Memorabilia, this is money. These are things he's bought from the proceeds of drug money. So we're seizing all that. So yes, unfortunately, we missed, we missed one of the monkeys, but. And there was another animal as well, wasn't there? So he had two wallabies, and again, they were pretty much, it was fenced in, but they were pretty much free to roam as they wanted. Uh, so he managed to detain, detain. He managed to <laughs> capture one wallaby. I can't remember that that went to How did you catch well. a wallaby? I wasn't there, luckily. So I and don't... This is another example. I think we got people in to help us, to be fair, who aspects would seize an animal husbandry. But we couldn't, one of them we couldn't get, and they can find, so... It got dark, so we had to leave it, we went away, and when we come back, unfortunately, again, that wallaby had found its way back into the property, and at the back of this property was a swimming pool, and the wallaby had gone into the pool and was able to get out. So by the time we've left late at night, come back in the morning, unfortunately, again, that wallaby is now deceased as well through drowning. Who keeps exotic animals like who? Very few people in reality that, you know, and he's not a known collector. No. This guy's just a criminal making money from cannabis. And like spending his money like, on animals and, and... And probably had more money than he needed, so he was splashing out on things that were unusual. So the film Memorabilia, that just went into, rather than buy Labradors or cats, he'd gone into monkeys and wallabies. And as one part of the investigation was dealing with dead, exotic animals, Paul Franklin was working on perhaps the most serious part of the inquiry. It is notoriously difficult to get victims of apparent human trafficking to cooperate. If they don't help, the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS, is reluctant to bring slavery charges. Found a charity who are linked in with some human rights lawyers and trafficking lawyers. Uh, so we passed all the details to them and said, you know, we'd like you to represent them, help them. If you can get them on board as victims, then great, you know, but... And so they did a load of work with them, but didn't get anywhere. We could never get a statement from them. They wouldn't speak to us. They wouldn't give us any information. And ultimately, CPS said without that, they weren't prepared to run a trafficking charge against them. So, uh, 
So that kind of ended up as a dead end road for that. Uh, Were you disappointed with that? Yeah, I was. To be fair, I mean, it would have been nice to have considered perhaps a victimless prosecution of trying to use them, but there are difficulties with that. And ultimately, the CPS are the, the prosecutor's authority around that. Uh, and they decided that the case just didn't meet that threshold at the time, which the cannabis is one thing, and it was nice to charge for that, but actually, it would have been nice to have shown that trafficking element. Uh, and we really, you know, we went for it and we tried for it. And I think it's good to highlight actually, as much as you might want to do it and it's the right thing to do, the difficulties and the practicalities as cops, you know, we don't decide on these charging, you know, that's the CPS. You know, we can only gather the evidence that's in front of us and there are times when that evidence doesn't meet the threshold. Where do these guys the four blokes, where did they come from, how did they get here, who brought them here, where they've been before, you know, the, that can't be the life they want to lead, you know, surely. But yeah, we just can get it through. And so they've gone back to Vietnam? They would have been deported back to Vietnam. So where again, they're on that, that treadmill of people have got the, their hooks into them and they're brought back to this country or other European countries and doing the same thing. We just don't know. What do you think of that? That, that, that you know, it's twenty what twenty twenty three. That there's people who live their life like this. Yeah, it's horrendous, isn't it? And yeah, you know, I suppose back in the nineties when I joined, we were charging. We were saying, "Well, you're complicit," and you know, the Vietnamese males were being charged with being as, as part of that production and going to prison. We have moved on from that now. We, you know, we see them as victims. They are victims. They're treated as victims. But breaking that cycle to actually charge the people to bring them over and stop that happening it's clearly proven a much more difficult challenge. endeavour and challenge than what, what people, it's easy for people to say, oh, it's outrageous, charge them. Yeah, we want to do that, but everything we do has to be to an evidential standard. And actually, with the laws as they are, and people don't cooperate, and you understand, you know, there's probably threats to family, back home, etc. had they come back that weren't unaware of, it's a really difficult challenge. So Fillory, Winter and Ngoyen never faced any charges relating to human trafficking. In court, they each pleaded guilty to conspiracy to produce Class B drugs and abstracting electricity. That guilty plea meant they didn't have to go into any big detail publicly about how and why they set up their operation. They offered only a brief explanation to the judge. What the defence barrister said about Fillory was that he became interested in cannabis after writing a screenplay about the drug. He'd previously been involved in TV memorabilia, which you know about. He collected cars and Daleks and he became he came to meet people who had more knowledge than he did about cannabis production. He saw it as an opportunity to to make money, which he he did. What are your thoughts about that? Dangerous writing screenplays. I didn't realise it was so dangerous. I, yeah, I mean... There's always mitigation, isn't it? And as a police officer, most of it you just laugh at because it's just ludicrous, to be honest. It's a screenplay in itself sometimes, what they say. He clearly knew what he was doing. He clearly knew there was four Vietnamese who had no choice but to do his bidding. And actually, they're living in squalor and filth whilst he's buying film memorabilia, which, at the end of the day, you only buy film memorabilia when you've got more money and you know what to do with. Did 
Fillory show any remorse, as far as you know, uh, uh, what he had done? No, or the three of them, you know, the fact that there were four people clearly locked in squalid conditions? No, and again, you, you read out the mitigation that was read out on his behalf at court, and I think that sums it up there, you know. There was no mention of the Vietnamese that were locked in there. There was no apology, remorse or anything shown. It was just, oh, pour me up in court. Uh, I didn't mean it. Uh, and that was saying, and like I say, they never spoke to us. They never engaged. Uh, they pleaded guilty at the first instance, and uh, they went off and did their time. So we'll never really know from themselves what more was behind it, who was behind them, who was financing them. That, that remains unanswered questions in sort of open court. Fillory admitted a third count of money laundering. He received eight years in prison. His co-accused each got five. It's, it's never enough for me, to be fair, on a personal level. But And this is the trouble, you know, on the one hand you'll say, you know, over a scheme of things, cannabis isn't heroin, which is more addictive potentially. It's more, has an image of being associated with more violence. But actually, on a scale like this, when you're producing this amount of cannabis and you're probably generating anything in excess of four million plus a year, you do this much heroin and actually you'll go to prison for a lot longer. You rob banks, you go to prison for a lot longer. So if you can make four million pounds a year and the worst happens if you get caught is you get eight years, you'll do half of that four years. That was probably a chance he was willing to take. So it's, for me, you know, it's within the guidelines, it's where we are, but does it send out a strong enough message? Uh, I would like to have seen more personally. But the police operation didn't stop with the sentencing. They still had the weed. How do you get rid of a small mountain of cannabis? Were 4,425 plants seized, 6,500 so-called unused plants. I'm not quite sure I know what that means. 643 kilos, which is two-thirds of a tonne of cannabis uh, that you had to get rid of. Rid of. Rid of yeah. How do you do that? So we put it in it. So at the time, we got a, a sealed skip, so with a lid on it. And they all got put in there. So the only way you could get rid of it safely is to burn it. But that brought its own issues with it because there are various places in the UK that can burn it, but some are quite small. And because of the fumes and because of health and safety, they would only burn so much at a time. So I said, I can't go there because if you're only going to burn, say, 20% of it, then I've got to guard it the other 80% until you go on to the next. So I think, I'll have to check, but I think we end up going to Bournemouth or Birmingham, Birmingham, one or two where there was a big incinerator where they said, look, yeah, you can, uh, you can burn it in a one, we, we will take it up. And so, because it was just a regular skip we'd hired from someone else, uh, you didn't know what was in it, it didn't show out. So uh, we got it escorted down there from some people from my team. Yeah, and we watched it, made sure it went into the burner. <laughs> uh, I said, do not go in the gates and come home, you have to go there, it goes into the burner. So as Fillory's cannabis was actually going up in smoke, as he was being imprisoned, police turned to his collection of film memorabilia to try to get something back from the fortune he'd earned through his criminal enterprise. Auctioneers came down, they brought car transporters and took all the vehicles away. They brought down removal type lorries uh, and they could go round the house and they could say, yeah, that, that's tat, not worth anything, leave it, that's good. So they went through his house, seized everything, they come down to Chilmark. And again, the barrels of fer liquid fertiliser we had down there, which were 20 quid a drum, they took... Transformers. The transformers, the lighting. lighting. Now, we're turning that money at least back into money that the police can use, CPS can use in the fight against crime. 
And were you pleased with, do you remember uh, how much it earned? Uh, if you don't, you don't. Just over a million. million. They were kind of hoping, uh, the auctioneers were hoping that it would have gone for more. But an auction's an auction. It's who's there on the day, isn't it? And who's so, the biggest uh, film fan on the day, really? Actually, to take a million off him, to take that property off him was good. That, that was more important. You know, he'd got his imprisonment term. But actually, to have some of that back as well and put it back to use. And it emerged, Fillory had been buying the nuclear bunker. He was just one payment and a few days away from taking ownership. Fillory himself was trying to purchase the venue itself. That isn't someone who's just been led on by others. He was part and parcel of it, is my own opinion. He nearly owned it, didn't he? He, he very nearly did own it. So he was buying it in stages. Uh, and what we understand, the agreement was it won't be yours until you've paid all payments. There were so many payments. And the day we arrested him was a, a week or so before the final payment was due to be made. So he was unable, he'd never made that final payment, so he never owned the building. Is Chilmark the biggest cannabis farm in Britain? Well, there is a legal one, which is run by a pharmaceutical company, and that is much bigger. As for criminal factories, well, there was one in Bangor in Wales in 2009, which was comparable, 11,000 plants. And this one in Chilmark had about the same. So it's up there with the very biggest and possibly is the largest one. We'll never know for sure. And farms like these are hard to hide and actually unattractive to criminal gangs now. Operations on this scale where you have one factory that's this big, they just don't exist anymore for the very reason that if it gets taken out... That... That's, yeah, because for them, you, you have to invest in it. So say, you know, the water supply, the electricity supply, the setting up of the scene. So if you lose that location for whatever reason, then all that investment is gone. And again, your income's gone. So what we have seen now, and we've seen this recently in Swindon, was uh, this was an Albanian-linked OCG, but there was eight different residential properties. So three-bed semi-type houses that were converted into them. So you know, if you lose one or two, you lose one or two, but actually you haven't lost your whole investment. I think he was surprised he got away with it for so long. He was very careful with um, what time they went. They used the dead of night as cover. You know, this isn't a a lit road this is a village with no street lights so you could just pass through in a an obs- um, 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 obscure car and for people like fillery the longer it goes on with no police attention or police action you know, you're talking now a year two years complacent you, you get co- complacent you get comfortable you think actually you're enjoying the revenue you're enjoying the money that's bringing in because the way it was set up you could crop every week so you had that constant source of cannabis so that could be passed on. So you have constant revenue. It wasn't just a one hit grow. Now we've got to wait four months for my next grow. It's constant. So they probably just get comfortable and they probably think, actually, they're too clever. They've done it. Please don't know. It is rural enough. And they let their guard down. It was a good little operation. To be fair, it was, you know, it was in the middle of nowhere. It was how a random dog walker smelt it. I still don't know because it's, they obviously went on a long dog walk because it is in the middle of nowhere. But also the, I think the, the delivery of that water bowser, that was kind of key because who has a huge tank delivered to a disused kind of bunker? That intelligence was crucial and lucky for us, but make your own luck sometimes. What learnings do you think have come from this case? Is there anything looking back that you would do differently with what you knew at the time? Or if other forces were looking at this kind of case now that you would suggest you need to do that? It's nice to know what you're going into. It's nice to be able to put those plans and contingencies in place to deal with, we've got this, 
But if you don't know what it is, sometimes you just have to take the bull by the horns and go for it and get in there. And once you get in there, then again, it's just having that reaction to actually put your foot on a ball, stop, assess, and then come up with a plan from there. And if that's the best you can do, I think you're better off doing that than just leaving it and saying, let's wait another six months and we'll know more information, more intelligence, and we can make a better plan. I'm fascinated by, particularly in this case, is a couple of clues, and it's like going to the seaside and pulling up a rock, and inside, underneath that rock, is all that life yeah. that's just been living there and yeah. living, its, living this secret world. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? That's what we do the job for, really. That's that's the buzz. That's yeah. You know, you're sitting, you're sitting in your office and do admin for hours and hours and trudge through that. That's not what you join a job for, but. You know, going and getting a phone call back. Actually, we've got the biggest cannabis find I've ever seen. Get out of your jammies, it's time to come back. <laughs> then, yeah, that's the adrenaline buzz. You're jumping in the car, you're firing down. Man, these guys, you know, are sneaking down a hill and no lights on and whatever and jumping on people. That, that's what we do it for. That, that's what we live for. That's, you know, you've beaten them. You've actually turned something over. You've stopped something. You've arrested people. We've rescued, we've rescued. Yeah, you've taken yeah, out the, the four people. Vietnamese guys. At least for that time, you've got a potential window of opportunity to try and help them. So unless you keep doing it, and who knows, maybe they go back to Vietnam, maybe they come back here and be in another cannabis factory, but if each time we keep busting in that, and each time we get them, at some point they may turn around and go, yeah, actually, and they'll talk to someone. I think this just showed, you know, something totally outside what we normally do. Cannabis is something we normally tackle. But actually, we pulled it all together, and we come away with one of the biggest, well, definitely the biggest find in Wiltshire, probably one of the, the bigger finds in the UK. And actually got, you know, save for the Vietnamese, locked up three bad guys, and actually you get to talk to yourself on a podcast. What more could you want? The three defendants, Ross Winter, Plamont Nguyen and Martin Fillery, all served their prison sentences and have now been released. I've tried to contact Fillery through his barrister to put across his side of the story, but I've been unsuccessful. Detectives are unaware of the fate of the four gardeners after they returned to Vietnam. Joe Shanklin was promoted to become a detective sergeant. He now works in the anti-corruption unit in Wiltshire Police. Paul Franklin was leading this case at the same time as he was investigating the parachute murder plot. Now that's another extraordinary story of the army sergeant who attempted to murder his wife by sabotaging her parachute and who nearly succeeded in killing her. That's the subject of my eight-part podcast series, No Strings Attached. Please do look that up if you haven't yet given it a listen. Back to the nuclear bunker and after the raid the building was sold to a bank. It's been cleared of its Cold War and organised crime paraphernalia. It's now used for data storage. The bunker has gone legit. If you want to see pictures of the aftermath of the police raid, just hop onto the Behind the Crimes site. You can see video clips with Paul Franklin and Joe Shanklin too. And please don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to the team. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy.